Welcome to the Lead Her Ship podcast with your host, Meredith Franklin. Join me every week as I interview different women who share their stories of success through failure. We will be giving valuable tips on relationships, business, health, mindset, and more to help you lead the life you deserve. I'm so excited you're here. Let's jump in. So excited for you guys to join me and my friend Amanda today on today's call. You guys, she is a good friend of mine. We've been friends for over 15 years and we've been through each other's weddings and with each other during pregnancy and births of, she's got three kids and she is the home birthing midwife. And so I'm so excited for you guys to just honestly get education. These are all questions that I had. And I know a lot of my friends have had too about home births, about birthing during the coronavirus and what that all entails. And so she's going to be answering a ton of my questions and hopefully answering yours too, so that you can make the best educated decision, have the empowerment and knowledge going into your birth, whatever that is, if it's going to be in a hospital or at home or in a birthing center, she talks about all of it. And really it's just empowering you to know really what they're saying in hospital settings or in midwifery settings and really the differences and and really giving you the voice that you need the voice that we didn't have with our first children and so we want you to learn from our mistakes so i'm so excited for today's interview and i hope you enjoy it Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for today. You guys, welcome Amanda. I'm so glad that you're here. We have Amanda, who's my good friend from probably she was 17, I was 19. We met at Hume Lake Christian Camp and we soon became fast friends. We were hostesses together. It was a very interesting, like, four or five months. And soon after that, both Amanda and I got engaged. Amanda did things a little faster than me. She was a year ahead of me pretty much. So she got married before me and then I got married and then she got pregnant and then she had her first son. And then I was a year behind, like almost to the day. So, so fun for all of that. But what was nice about it is that she really was able to help me with my first birth. That was pretty traumatic because her birth was also pretty traumatic. And so even after that, our second births, both of us, she was again, a few years, a year ahead of me with that. Her second birth was super similar to my second because we both decided that we wanted to go more the natural route because of what had happened with our super invasive first births. So Amanda, I'm so excited that you're here. And our whole goal guys for this call, this is during the coronavirus. And we know that so many mothers had hospital births planned and they have their births planned out and things are not going the way that they want. And so we want to give you guys ease and peace of mind of what midwifery really does entail, um, what a home birth really looks like, or a birthing center birth really looks like. So that's our goal today. And we want to answer as many questions as we can. So Amanda, welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Finally. (laughs) Yay. So, okay. Why don't you share with us a little bit about, well, maybe even just go into your first son's birth just a little bit and like why you decided to choose to go and have your third birth be completely home birth. Yeah. So like Meredith said, we both had similar desires in our first birth to have 
natural, unmedicated births. And having it be our first ones, we didn't really know exactly what to expect or weren't really educated on all that could happen in a hospital. I guess you could say we were a little bit naive and just hoping we could just show up in labor and have an undisturbed intervention-free birth because that's the farthest thing from what we got, (laughs) to put it nicely. So my first birth, my water had broken before labor contractions actually began. And I was GBS positive, which is something that is routinely tested around like 36, 37 weeks. Now looking back, I had this intuition, I guess you could call it, that my water was going to break first. And I just wanted to be proactive about this GBS bacteria and handle it ahead of time, which is not how standard OBs treat it. They kind of just wait till you show up to the hospital and give you IV antibiotics. And that's kind of what we did. However, my water broke first. And so there was quite a few hours where there were no antibiotics and he was exposed to it. And so we did the standard two doses of antibiotics in labor. He was born and he was having respiratory distress. He would have periods where he would just stop breathing. And the hospital I was at was not equipped with a NICU at the time to handle it. So he had to be life flighted in a helicopter down about an hour south of us. And so I ended up just discharging myself AMA to go be with him because they wanted to keep me at least 24 hours, but I wanted to be with him as you should be after you have a baby. Um, And he spent uh, 10 days in the NICU in San Diego on IV antibiotics. And um, yeah, he was, he was okay after that healthy, they say, but he's had lots of um, health problems like allergies and asthma and things like that, which now with all the knowledge that I have, I trace it back to his birth and being on antibiotics because there's this beautiful exposure that they're supposed to have to our microbiome. And that's how babies get theirs established and their immune systems established. So being on antibiotics prevented him from establishing his own microbiome. Basically his birth is what set me on my journey of looking into other options because I was young and didn't know that there were other options than giving birth in a hospital. And so that is when I found out about midwives and home birth and giving birth out of the hospital setting. Yeah. So what's crazy about your first birth is legitimately all of that happened to me. GBS positive. Silas wasn't breathing. They had to take him. He was on antibiotics while birthing. We had trouble with even the whole delivery. I didn't have contractions either. Like crazy stuff. And he was also NICU, but for only four days because they felt really bad for us because it was Christmas. But (laughs) because you took him home too. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't you take him home on Christmas Eve? Yeah. It was Christmas Eve. Yeah. I think that they just felt bad for you. But at the same time, what we were both super young and something Mm -hmm. that I truly realize, and maybe I think you don't understand this until you go through it, which is unfortunate, but they treat you a certain way when you're young. And I didn't Mm -hmm. realize we can get into this in a minute, but I didn't realize that I had a voice and it wasn't until my second birth that I had a doula and you were the one who encouraged me to do that. 
because mm-hmm. they could then tell me, Hey, this is what this means. You can say no to it. Yeah. I thought everything that they told me in the hospital, like, Hey, we're going to give him a bath. Hey, we're going to cut the cord immediately. Hey, we're going to give him vitamin K shot. Like I can actually say no to every single one of those things, but the way that they kind of treat you is a little more forceful. At least that is my and your experience. Yeah. And a lot of people's experiences, a lot of people who are younger, of course, are treated that way. But I think just people in general, especially in our country, lack knowledge and kind of just place the responsibility of the health of ourselves and our babies and our families in the hands of these doctors and just give them full discernment and decision-making in their care. We are not taking responsibility for our own health care. We're not looking into our options. We're not educating ourselves and making empowered decisions for our care. And just how healthcare is, we're kind of lacking that shared decision-making between ourselves as a patient and the healthcare provider. It's supposed to be a collaborative relationship where they provide us with all of the information. And then together we make a decision on what feels best for us. And that was definitely what was lacking in my first birth and what I was looking for with my second made me reach out to midwives. And I was looking into having a home birth. By the time I was looking into it, I was eight months pregnant and it just didn't work out with that one. It almost did just because of how fast it went. But I started talking with local midwives and just started a relationship with one to where she was just communicating with me and giving me ideas and things on how things could go differently with my second birth. And sure enough, I was GBS positive again with this birth. And I started doing some things that the midwife told me I could do and that were good for treating it ahead of time. And I did that. And he came incredibly fast, so fast that I wasn't able to get antibiotics, which is the standard. And he was perfectly healthy and fine. And that is kind of when the light bulb went off and was like, wow, there's a better way. (laughs) So well, yeah. And tell us about your third Joni's birth, because did you have a midwife for that? Yeah. So after my second was born, I was just like obsessed with midwives and home birth and just started reading all the things and meeting with midwives. And I started actually assisting midwives in my area, going to prenatal visits and home births and all the things. So by the time I got pregnant with my third, I had already been assisting at home births and just in that world for a good year, I would say, before she was born. So I did have a midwife with me for her birth and, but I liked it because I kind of felt like I was my own midwife (laughs) because I had quite a bit of knowledge at the time and was able to just instinctually do things how I wanted it to be done. And she was there just kind of as a lifeguard (laughs) to make sure things didn't go wrong. And yeah, it was a beautiful birth experience, a redemptive experience. I really like the word that you just use is like a lifeguard. So tell us really quickly the difference between a doula and a midwife, because I didn't know this. Um, When I was in the (laughs) hospital with my doula, when I delivered my second, I was at a hospital, but it was a midwifery. So I had that, but then I brought in my doula and I thought that my doula could just say no to things for me. 
apparently like that's not, she's like, I can't actually speak for you. You have to decide. (laughs) And what was, it was a frustrating to me. Cause I'm like, just tell her what you think I should do. She's like, she can't even really tell me which choice she would choose. She can only give me the full options. Right. So tell me the difference between them. Okay. So this is like, one of the biggest questions people have about, they just think they're the same people, (laughs) doulas and midwives. So a doula is a support person who supports you throughout your entire pregnancy, all the decisions on testing and procedures and what healthcare provider you want to use. They kind of provide you with unbiased information. They're kind of like what you're supposed to get from your healthcare provider, but what we're not getting for the most part in the United States. And so they support you through your pregnancy, your labor. There's lots of decisions in your labor that need to be made, as you know. But yeah, they cannot make any decisions for you. They need to help you um, identify where your values are and what's important to you and help you have all the information that you need to make those decisions. And they're also there for you just for postpartum support and emotional support, all that. A midwife, okay, so there's two types of midwives in the United States. There's a certified nurse midwife, which is like you were talking about, who goes through nursing school first, and they are RNs, and then they go on to become a midwife. They practice more similarly to how OBs practice, because they're under OB supervision at all times. And then there's CPMs, which is a certified professional midwife, which is what I am becoming. And we work out of hospital settings in birth centers or freestanding birth centers or um, home births. A midwife provides support similarly to doulas, but our primary focus is on your health care. We provide all of your medical care, doing hands-on things. Doulas are not allowed to do any sort of medical thing or they could go to jail because they haven't been to medical school. They are not trained to do that. So we do prenatal visits just like OBs do. I provide them all in the home setting, which is really lovely right now because you don't have to go out into the other germs of the world. You're just in your own germs, which is wonderful. (laughs) And we do all the same things that an OB would do. Well, this is, it's interesting to me because for... Me, I wish that I would have known all of this before I would have had my children. I just wish I would have been educated on this. And I don't know, like, I'm just like floored that this isn't more talked about. This isn't more known. And I understand like right now, this is like key for what's going on in our world, but I'm excited for what's going to happen with the home birth centering and midwives and the education of the woman and the empowerment of the woman after all of this, truly. Yes. So we provide all the same things OBs do in prenatal care. Like we come and do your blood pressure, weight, check your urine. We order labs, draw blood, order ultrasounds, all those same things. However, our visits are usually about an hour long. So we're all throughout your care. We're really establishing a relationship, a trust-based relationship, and really becoming comfortable with each other. We provide so much information on nutrition and supplements. And so that I feel like is the biggest thing right now with the coronavirus, that your body, when it does not feel safe, it does not function properly. And I think that's a huge thing too. It's like just going into labor 
when animals go into labor, they go find a little corner, a dark corner where they feel safe and they're left alone. We're very much like that. We've gotten far away from that with how childbirth has become more medicalized. But yeah, so there's just so many women who are in that scary place right now of they don't feel safe in the hospital and they're just looking into all this frantically as they're in their eighth month of pregnancy. And yeah, it's kind of wild right now we're trying to be that like calming force out there where it's like everything's okay you're gonna be okay you're gonna have this baby no matter what now only less than five percent of people in our country give birth out of the hospital so it's like so much to be learned (laughs) right and you guys also not only care for the mother but you're there for the baby so you also go in and after there's a whole after baby's born that you guys come back to the home for which you do not see at all in hospital births but yeah so it's very different so explain what you do even with the baby and mother yeah so well prenatally we're spending a lot of time we talk to the baby it seems kind of crazy to people but We informed consent is a huge thing in midwifery uh, with the person who's pregnant as well as with the baby. So we're always talking to the baby like, hi, introducing ourselves. The baby gets used to us too, which sounds really bizarre, but they are a big participant here, even though they're still in utero. We're letting them know, hi, I'm going to feel you, see what position you're in, Um, which is another thing that OBs don't pay a ton of attention to. They kind of just listen to the heartbeat and then that's it. But we're spending tons of time palpating and figuring out what position baby's in and make sure labor can go as smoothly as possible. In labor, we're monitoring fetal heart tones. We do it intermittently, whereas in the hospital, you're constantly being monitored with the straps on your belly, which studies have shown there's no real change in outcome with continuous versus intermittent monitoring. We listen a lot more frequently when we're in second stage of labor, when mother begins pushing. And then after the baby's born, we are doing a lot of monitoring just with our eyes because midwives are, our eyes are more tuned into the normal physiological processes that newborns go through, which is a thing that I'm finding is really uncomfortable in the hospital setting for nurses and doctors because babies have this experience where they're getting acclimated to the outside world and we can tell just by looking at the baby their color their tone their activity if their eyes are open how they're assimilating the experience if they're transitioning well And we can tell babies that need help transitioning just by looking at them. And so in those situations, we have different levels of care that we can do. We have newborn resuscitation equipment where a lot of times babies just need some rescue breaths is what we call it. And it really just like kind of triggers them to like, oh, I'm here. I'm okay. I need to come into my body and figure these things out. Usually that's all babies need. Just a little kickstart. More often than not, babies don't need any help at all and they're just completely fine. We do newborn exam. We provide all in-home postpartum visits, which is such a huge thing that's lacking, not just the home visits, but just postpartum care in general. It's like you see your OB at the 24 to 72 hour mark, depending on if you give birth vaginally or have a belly birth and they discharge you pretty much. And then you don't see them again really for until the six week visit. 
when you talk about like birth control and clear you to have intercourse and things like that. So there's a huge lapse in care there where it's like the biggest transition of your life becoming a mom. Really quickly, I think that people don't talk about the fourth trimester like ever. And people may have hemorrhoids. People may have continual breeding issues with your fundus. I mean, postpartum depression, and they may not even be aware because I had three different midwives that I went to into the birthing room or into the doctor room and none of them really got to know me. And then the day of the birth, she was there literally at the end, just so that, I don't know, it was like five minutes before Derek could have just done the whole thing himself. Um, Right. And so they just came to just be there and then they left. And then the next time I didn't see anyone, I saw a different person every time. And it was six weeks later. Yes, you're okay to have intercourse or whatever. But the cool thing to me, I feel like your midwife is like almost married to you. And they're like, okay, how are you doing? Do you have hemorrhoids? Here's how we can fix it. Do you want to do placenta pills, your generational depression, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a huge benefit of having a relationship established with this person for seven, eight months. We really get to know each other and we are in tuned with this person and can tell like something seems off. Are you okay? Are you, you want to talk about whatever? And that's a huge thing that is missed where people are not disclosing when they're having um, signs of postpartum mood disorders. And it's not just depression. People don't really understand that there's postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, postpartum psychosis even. It's just there's a stigma associated with it where people are like scared to talk about it because it doesn't seem normal. So this is because they are, are not hearing about it. So part of our postpartum care is talking about it. Like, hey, this is something that some people experience. These are the signs of it. And it is rare, but it's normal. You might just feel something like the blues, which is super common for a few days, up to two weeks after birth. If it persists after that, or if you're having these thoughts, reach out to us. We're here. And lactation care. Because lactation, I mean, come on. And each kid is different how they nurse. Yeah, that is super huge. There is hardly any lactation support in the hospital. Well, and I remember when I was in the hospital, they were more forcing me to use the nipple shield. And then they're like, just screw it. You can pump and we'll give him a bottle to just try to make him hit weight. But I was so stressed out because of the environment, because they had me all hooked up to tubes Mm -hmm. that it wasn't working out. It wasn't until I... It was like nine weeks later, I met with a lactation specialist who just took the time with me to get to know me and my baby. Yeah. Yeah. They're very quick to supplement and aren't aware of like things that could be impeding the baby's latch, like tongue tie stuff. And that's another thing that all of my kids have, but my first was the most severe and it was like nipple shield is the answer. (laughs) And We used that dang nipple shield for weeks. And I just thought that was normal. Like, oh, he just needs it to nurse. And now looking back, I'm like, if we needed nipple shields, God would have made us with nipple shields on our nipples. Like we have everything we need to 
procreate and keep our babies alive and healthy and growing. So when there's issues like that, it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. We can fix it, you know? So we did talk about um, the blues. And so there are, you can, I would love to hear about this because I don't really know. I remember one of my friends when I first had Silas was doing this and I thought it was weird. She was taking the placenta pills. So kind of explain like why that's beneficial. And I don't know if all midwives offer that. Yeah. It's not so much the midwives who do it. I've done it for eight years now because I've been assisting at births. And so it's just like a little perk that I can offer people. A lot of doulas offer it. And so Basically, when you become pregnant, your placenta takes over all the hormone production in your body. And so you give birth to this baby, you give birth to the placenta, and right after that, you experience a crazy decrease in all these hormones, which is why they say postpartum blues are so common and so normal, because you're just like figuring out how to get back to balanced hormone levels. And so we are pretty much the only mammal that does not regularly consume our placenta after giving birth. And some people say it's because animals are in the wild and they're trying to protect their young from prey or whatever. But I kind of feel like it is like an instinctual knowing that they need to replenish their body with nutrients and hormones and things like that. So basically the idea of consuming your placenta after birth is because it kind of stabilizes those hormone levels a little bit more balanced and it can balance your mood. It can um, improve your milk supply because your placenta has so much protein and nutrients in it, which is what your body needs to make build blood, which is where your milk is produced from your blood volume. And that's something that you have a pretty significant loss in as well after birth, which is completely normal. So that kind of just like, just replenishes all of your stores in your body and helps energy, helps healing, all those things. That is so cool. I remember my friend swearing by them and she was almost out and she's like, no, I need them. I need more of them. They're like my happy pills. I was like, oh, that's so I cool. No, everyone calls them happy pills. It's yeah. so funny. And some people, a lot of times the husband or the partner are like, yeah, I can tell when she's forgotten to take them. And I don't know if it's a placebo, if it's actually working, but I don't care. Like if it's placebo and she's feeling better, that's awesome. So yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. But I didn't even know when I had, I don't know about you, but when I had my first kid, I remember like, wait, you bleed afterwards? Why? Like, wait, what? And so no one even told me, (laughs) like there was no after, like, I guess pre sharing with me aftercare. Maybe I should have known that. I don't know why I should have known that. Yeah. Well, a lot of times our moms are the ones who tell us about all these things, but I don't know if it's just like our culture, but I feel like I didn't know very much about anything until I started like getting into midwifery. And that's a pretty common thing. It's like, wait, (laughs) we bleed for up to six weeks after giving birth. Is this a joke? And there's so many, (laughs) so many things that people don't know about because we don't spend a lot of time talking to our providers in this country about what after giving a baby looks like and how to really take care of yourself and 
protect that fourth trimester. Yeah. Well, I think it's also their time. So, and it's maybe cost. And Mm -hmm. so for someone like a midwife to sit with you for an hour, Mm -hmm. I can't even tell you what that would do. Like you would feel heard, you'd feel seen, you'd build that relationship and they are going to see you in the most vulnerable state of your life. Mm -hmm. So why don't you kind of share with us and we want to help educate so what does your education, kind of, like how long was your education? How many births have you had to have under your belt before you get certified? Those types of things. Yeah. So every state is different when it comes to licensure. There are some states where it's still illegal to practice midwifery out of hospital because when birth became medicalized back in the 1800s, um, midwives were sort of looked at as witches is what they were called for quite a long time. Yeah, it's, I could go into that for a really long time. So we've really done a lot of work to become more normalized and get like in the seventies is pretty much when people started getting back to seeking midwives. And it's been a really long journey getting back to where we are. So in California, which is where I live, you have to go through an accredited midwifery school to become licensed by the medical board of California. So my schooling personally, I am just next week is my last week of midwifery school. I am getting my bachelor's of science in midwifery. So I'll have my BSM. And after that, I will sit for the licensing exam with the North American Registry of Midwives to get my CPM credential, which is kind of nationwide. The state of California also requires licensure. And I'll also have my LM, my licensed midwife credential. So basically, it's been four years of midwifery school. I started going to births in 2011. So I had a lot of births under my belt before I even enrolled in midwifery school. But for the NARM, I have over like 150 births myself, but I'm trying to think of how many they require for licensure. You don't do C-sections, is that correct? Like you would have to send them out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do not do C-sections. We do not do epidurals, pain relief. We don't induce with Pitocin. We have Pitocin to administer after birth if there's issues with bleeding. And you also do like stitching up or do you do episiotomies or they're just like naturally? We can do episiotomies. It's something that most midwives have never done before because it's really unnecessary and it's a common intervention that OBs do, which is really unnecessary. Yeah, but we do suture after. So like, you know, when you need um, outside intervention to send them to an emergency, like how does that all go down? If like there's some reason that they need not your services. Yeah. So we have all We can administer three different medications we can give for postpartum bleeding. And it just ranges. We try to use herbs and things like that first as our like first line defense. And it's just by gauging with our eyes. And if it's like, "Eh, we're not going to do herbs first, we're going to go straight to the medicine. We'll use Pitocin. We have uh, Cytotec, which is a pretty um, strong anti-hemorrhagic which we can administer and we have a medicine called methergen. And so once we use all of our 
bags of tricks we've got. We have oxygen. We just make the call. If this is no longer safe to continue at home, we will take them, either drive them in a personal car or call the ambulance, depending on what the situation is. And we just provide report to the hospital staff, the nurse or the OB on call. And sometimes that happens in labor before the baby's even been born, like just by listening to the baby, because that's really the only way the baby can communicate to us how their experience is going. So we pay a lot of attention to their heart rate pattern. And yeah, I'd say most of the time people will transport to the hospital, usually if it's a first baby and their baby's in a funky position or something and it's going really long and they're getting tired, they'll want to go in and get an epidural just so they can rest, get some sleep, and then wake up and push out a baby. That would probably be the number one reason why we transport. Are you someone who follows them? Like, are you going with them? Yeah, typically if our clients choose to go to the hospital or if we recommend they go to the hospital, we will go with them to the hospital, bring all their medical records, provide report to the receiving physician, and then we will kind of just become their doulas because we can't provide any medical care at this point in a hospital setting. So we just become kind of like their support people and advocate for them for the things that we know are important to them. However, right now with how things are, that's not allowed anymore. So we just would make ourselves available via FaceTime or whatever. We haven't had to transport anyone yet during this coronavirus. So thankfully, but that's how it would go down. Yeah. And like, I mean, we've, I have heard personally so many different things that like, if I was pregnant right now would stress me out so badly. And so I know that if I was pregnant right now, I would want to know my options. I want to have my first would be probably birthing center or home birth. And my backup would be hospital. And I'd want to know all my options for when I'm in the hospital, because I keep hearing different things. Like every day, a new rule is being administered. I mean, obviously it depends on where you live, but I just heard today from someone in San Diego, it was like, well, the mother and baby have to stay six feet away from each other if they're not nursing. Just things like that, that I know as you are a mother. And I think that the biggest thing, if I could give any, I guess, advice, and it's, it's truly only like, it's like, if you do, you just need to do it in order to like, know, but mm -hmm. that you have all that it takes within you, like birthing, you can birth a baby and it's so bizarre. And you can attest to this a thousand percent. My second one, you could have literally knocked me over the head and my body would have squeezed that thing out of me no matter what, because I just felt my ribs just pushing this child out of me without my control. Yeah. A lot of people aren't aware that people in comas push their babies out. It's going to happen, <laughs> you know? And one thing that is probably the most common concern with all of this, like people seeking out of hospital births is the pain relief thing, how we do not have epidurals. And so that's just such a scary thing to a lot of people is the pain. I don't know, maybe it's from like movies and how they portray childbirth as something that's just so unbearable, but like, it's really not, it's so cliche, but like your body was built to do this. People hear that all the time, but seriously, like 
as the intensity of the contractions increase, your body meets those demands by releasing more oxytocin, more adrenaline, more endorphins, so that you literally become almost superhuman in your like pain tolerance because your body knows, okay, we got some serious work to do. We're going to do this. And so, oh, just like the oxytocin, like that is one thing. It's just such a miracle hormone. Like it's the love hormone. It's what you release when you're making love. And when you see a brand new baby or hold a puppy, it's the feel good hormone. And so that's something that is hindered when people have epidurals and they don't realize it. Like your body is not able to release the vast amount of oxytocin that it's designed to. And, um, Pitocin is also a thing. They've done studies on how people are more likely to develop like postpartum mood disorders when they've had Pitocin and an epidural, I believe, was the study. Well, I can attest for that with my first one. But I think that's something I want to just blanket statement, regardless, it doesn't matter which direction you choose to birth. If you want drugs, like that's what I love about midwives and doulas. They want you to have the birth that you want. They just educate you on all of the side effects and things like that. But for me, like when we talk about pain, I think it's so funny and I swear it's a lie. I had an epidural and I felt more pain with that first child with an epidural in Pitocin than I did fully natural with my daughter because I swear there was no invasiveness. I was going to the chiropractor. I let my baby choose when she came. So she came like at 48, one and a half weeks, almost 42 weeks. And, and also I didn't ever let the nurse check me Mm -hmm. because of what happened with my first birth. Um, he was delivered too soon. And then the position I was in, I was on all fours and I was on my back with my son. You're able to move and listen to your body and get into the positions that feel right. Like I see so many women like this one birth in particular, she was sitting on the toilet, which is a love toilet birth. <laughs> it's so weird. We could do a whole nother podcast on all the weird midwife junk I love, but um, <laughs> she was sitting on the toilet and her baby's head came out perfectly fine. But she just like instinctually got up and like lifted her leg up into this weird like position on the toilet. She just knew the baby's shoulder was like a little bit hung up and she needed to get into this weird position and the baby just came right out. It's like, if you have an epidural, you cannot do that. You can't listen to your body. You're having people coach you. And you're doing basically forced pushing. I feel like that is why women tear more and have more perineal trauma and pelvic floor issues and just a whole gang of stuff that could be prevented if you're just listening to your body and instinctually moving and doing what feels right. And another thing I was going to say about like all the new, it's like every day there's a different hospital with a different protocol and whatnot. A big one that I've heard locally is that if a woman develops a fever in labor, whether she tests positive for coronavirus or not, her and the baby are separated for two weeks. And it's like, oh my gosh, that is the most important time. Your baby feels safest when they're on you, on your heart, like smelling you and you're smelling your baby and you're releasing all those hormones that tell your body it's time to make milk. It's time to take care of your baby. And it's just so crazy. I just am 
just so worried about like the long-term effect on these moms and babies who are being separated and can't establish their breastfeeding relationship. And um, these babies don't feel safe. They feel like they're like born and are essentially abandoned by the person that they know to keep them safe. It's just so heartbreaking because it's like a common thing to have a fever of some degree in labor. Like you're working hard, you're getting warmed up. And then fevers are also pretty common with epidurals. So it doesn't always mean that you are sick with a virus. So frustrating, but yeah. It's frustrating. And like, honestly, we just want you to know what your options are and a few other things. And we can go into more of this another podcast because we do want a deep dive, but just know that midwives they know the vaccine inserts. They will give you that information for you to make that decision. They know, and we can go into this a little bit, but like, I didn't know that I could say no to no vitamin K for my son or my daughter, but I didn't know I could say no to the goop on the eyes, which actually in turn terrible for my daughter. We almost had surgery because of it. And we didn't know about we didn't know about circumcision. Like we didn't know about all of these things. So I want to talk a little bit about first few things that I know that hospital births are different with like midwifery is cutting the cord too soon, bathing vitamin K and maybe baby goop in the eyes. I don't even know what it is. Yes. Erythromycin. (laughs) Yes. So, um, those are all the most common differences for the immediate postpartum period. So delayed cord clamping is something that's just becoming more studied on. In the hospital, I believe they consider delayed cord clamping to be between like 30 and 90 seconds after the baby is born. How we do it, we have the baby is born, the baby goes right onto the mom, and we deliver the placenta after usually by the 30 minute mark, the placenta is born. We just deliver it without cutting the cord. We either put it in a bowl or wrap it up in a checks pad and have it just next to them because there's still transfer of blood going on. A third of the baby's blood volume is in that placenta after birth. That's a crazy amount. Like it's equivalent to what would classify a postpartum hemorrhage for us is the amount of blood that the baby doesn't get after with immediate cord clamping. And that's like oxygen too for the baby, right? It's oxygen. Yeah. They're just hemoglobin, red blood cells, stem cells, all these things that are so important for them and belongs to them. (laughs) So we wait like up to an hour after the baby's born before we even cut the cord. That's just us. (laughs) So what was interesting, and I want to hear what you have to say about this. So with Silas, baby comes out quickly. Okay, he's not breathing, but we cut the cord and he wasn't breathing. So Derek, when when I had Brinley... They did. They let me birth the, the placenta. Brinley was already like working her way up to my breast. They let her take her time. She was wide awake and all the things and the most like alert baby. And then it was about an hour and Derek cut it. And so I was like, Hey, what was the difference? He's like, one felt like a bony finger. Like I cut a bone and then Brinley's felt like a noodle, like a wet noodle. Yes. That's such a good comparison. Well, and he would know, right? Because he's the hunter. <laughs> like, And so I was like, wait, how could they feel so different? But they, he was cutting Silas's right away. It was all about time, speed. Yeah. And even like, so I'm always like assessing umbilical cords for after the baby's born just to get their 
like pulse and see if the placenta is still pumping blood, see if it's detached. Like even after the placenta is born, like you can still see in the cord by the color and thickness and fullness of it, if there's still blood in the cord. And it's amazing by the like 45 minute hour mark, the cord is completely limp and white. So it's like, I know blood is still getting transferred. It's wild. And so as far as like bathing the baby, like babies are not dirty when they're born. This is like so frustrating. They're Aren't born. they like the most like sterile thing? Yes. And they're, they have so much good stuff on them. They're vernix, amniotic fluid, just all the good bacteria that they went through to establish their microbiome is so important. Like our skin is our largest organ and it absorbs everything. And so vernix in particular is like such, it's like a magic goop. I feel (laughs) all these things. And it's like amazing. Even the cheesiest babies that are born within an hour or two, like their skin just soaked it all in. And it's like, they were, didn't have any verdicts on them at all. It's like so cool to see that. And in the hospital, they just like scrub it all off right away. And I'm just like, that's what (laughs) is so important. Like the baby licks your skin with amniotic fluid on it. And that's kind of like, how they assimilate, like, this is my person. This is who's going to keep me safe. This is who's going to feed me. And the mom too, like we smell their smells, the everything on them. And that's, it's just like a beautiful symbiotic, like dance that happens. And And then what about the eye goop and vitamin K? Yeah. So the eye goop erythromycin is for, to protect baby's eyes from sexually transmitted infections gonorrhea and chlamydia in particular, which um, we test every client for in pregnancy. We offer to retest again in the third trimester just to be safe if they feel like maybe their partner isn't faithful. That's pretty rare, but it could happen. And so all of our moms who are free of gonorrhea and chlamydia, it's like we give them the choice. Do you want to give them this eye ointment, which protects them from getting an infection from gonorrhea and chlamydia, but it also has side effects. Like babies can have allergic reactions and go blind. Like people don't know that this is a possible side effect of something that's supposed to be protecting them from infection and blindness. (laughs) What I was told just really quickly was I was like, what are you doing? And they're like, we're putting this on their eyes because you could possibly have gonorrhea or chlamydia. And I was like, oh, we've only had one partner, but she's like, well, just in case, you know, just think like, so making me feel like maybe my spouse cheated on me yeah. and then saying, and if you don't do it and they have it, then your child will be blind. And I was like, so there's nothing I can do. Like I should just, yeah. so the group is the only way. Yeah. And so that goes back to the trust-based relationship between the OBC, so many people and don't have relationships with like any of them so for them it's kind of like to protect them because they really can't trust their patients we call them clients but they call them patients so but once again that was fear-based so she put fear in me so then I was like okay I I should do it yep mm -hmm, okay but then Brinley till she was almost nine months almost a year and they said when she's a year she'd need surgery she had clogged tear ducts both of them severely oh man yeah 
Yeah. So that's what that is for. That's something that you also, so you have that in your arsenal. So like, let's just say someone tests positive. Let's just say you have the goop. Yes. We have the goop. We have the antibiotics to administer in labor with IV. We have IV therapy for when mom's getting dehydrated. We have all those things. Like if someone feels safer having antibiotics in labor, that's your choice. And you can do that for GBS, you know? And you have it. Yes, we can administer that. We can give the eye goop. We can give the shot of vitamin K after the baby's born if that's what you're comfortable with. But what is it for? It's for vitamin K deficiency bleeding in babies. So all babies everywhere are born with this low amount of vitamin K until the eighth day is when they start producing more of it. And so when they're born in the hospital, they're just automatically given this shot with this crazy high amount of vitamin K. In addition to vitamin K, it has other things in it, like preservatives and stuff to keep it from going bad. And a lot of people are not aware that vitamin K actually does have a black box warning, which means that it has caused deaths in some babies, a very small amount of babies, granted, but people are not aware that this thing has actually caused deaths from, might be from an infection or uh, allergic reactions. But, and so people are just told like, it's completely safe. It's a vitamin, like it's fine. But they, a lot of people don't even know what it's for. And babies are born with this low amount. And it's like, we have to wonder, like, they have this low amount. Is it for a reason? Are they not supposed to have a higher amount of this vitamin right now? But there are some babies who do develop vitamin K deficiency bleeding and they can, you know, bleed anywhere in their body. And it can be catastrophic, like for those babies, which is incredibly rare. So we're giving all babies everywhere, this crazy high amount of vitamin K, just in case they have this thing, which can cause bleeding, which granted, like if you are the parent that has this baby who dies from vitamin K deficiency bleeding, of course, you're going to be like, heck yes, every baby should get this shot. Like, just in case it prevents. But we do have to question, like, what are the implications of this shot for every baby who do not have this vitamin K deficiency bleeding? And so that's kind of like, we give our clients options. Like you have the option to give your baby the shot if that's how you feel safest. And if that's how you choose to parent, you have other options as well. Like the UK offers oral vitamin K drops, which have been proven to be very closely effective to the vitamin K shot. It does rely on the parent has to continue giving this oral vitamin K every day. So the efficacy is based on the parents like compliance with continuing to administer. But when it is followed through, it's been shown to be like 99.02 or something like that percent effective, whereas the shot is almost close to 100% effective. It's like 99.9%. So both still pretty effective. Their studies on a website called Evidence-Based Birth, which you can look at and review. And then some people just don't do anything. They don't give oral, they don't do a shot. They just choose to let their baby develop the vitamin K when it's That's what I did with Brinley, but not silence. Because I didn't know. What I did with Joni. Yeah. And Joni's birth was so beautiful. In the house, in a tub. Yeah, it was fun. I wanted a tub so bad with Bryn, but it was like 20 minutes later, here she comes. So yeah, no time. Second babies. 
this fly right out. Lightning fast. <laughs> I know. What have you ever um, done a birth with someone who's had like four or five kids and they're like, do they come out really fast? Have you ever like delivered a baby? Oh yeah. Last month we had a, a ninth baby and an eighth baby just days apart from each other. Did they fly out? No. Uh-uh. It just kind of depends on like what the mom's laboring pattern is. This one mom um, just has a pattern of kind of like laboring all night, like not super intense. And then once like really gets serious, she has a baby within like 30 minutes. That's oh, I like it. Yeah. I've been at like her past three births. That's efficient. Um, yeah. And then, um, the other one has had kind of all different ones. <laughs> She's had quite a, f- I think three of them were unassisted because they came so fast. So we were there a little early just to be safe. <laughs> Seriously, really quickly. I want to help everybody because I know I did this. What do you recommend when finding a midwife, especially say that I'm eight months pregnant, seven, eight months pregnant. What do I do now? I'm changing my birth plan. I don't want to do a hospital. Like who do I talk to? Where can I go? And also interview your midwife because not everyone will mesh with you interview more than one midwife yes (laughs) super important because midwives are all essentially trained in the same emergency measures like we all carry the same medicine we can all do the same things that part isn't really different from midwife to midwife but all midwives have different personalities and different philosophies more hands-on and there still can be interventions in a home birth, like just with how the midwife feels most comfortable and how she practices. So yeah, you can just kind of Google like home birth midwives in your area, or even most of them are on Yelp and reading birth stories and Yelp reviews is really helpful as well. And just interview and all midwives do free consultations. So yeah, it's important to just like kind of feel out their energy and how you feel like you drive together. And there was something else that you said to me. I think that this is true. So tell me. So when you have a midwife, don't they usually have an assistant because there's two people during a birth? Exactly. Yeah. Most midwives usually have at least two people there on their team. Some have three or four, which is another important thing to ask because some people just less is more in a sense. Like less eyes on them, watching them kind of feels more safe to them. So that's another important thing. But no, no less than two people because there's you, the mother, and then baby involved. Yeah. Shouldn't be. Sometimes if a mom goes really fast, just the midwife will show up if there's no time. But typically there's at least two people because we have two people that we're caring for. So if something happened and the mom needed attention, like she was bleeding too much and the baby was having trouble breathing, like we need two people at least to be caring for these people. So, right. And that's what you're paying for. So when we're saying interview someone, I interviewed two different doulas and one doula I felt good with, but she was also on call for fostering. And I was like, okay, so that would hinder. And she also had a child. So I'm like, "Mm, maybe I just wanted to know that I could rely any point in time. This lady's like on call for me if I need anything. So with that too, Amanda, like how... Are you pretty much like, I'm, I'm your client or your, whatever you call me, like your client. Can I call you, text you, whatever at any point in time? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm paying for you. You, I am who you're going to get no matter what. There are some practices, mainly like birth centers who have 
four or more licensed midwives on staff and they do like shifts where they're on call. And so that's kind of something you have to consider too when looking at birth centers, if that feels good to you. I'd say the perk of having a home birth midwife, most of them are a solo practice, meaning like the midwife you hire is the one you're going to get, like your whole pregnancy, birth, everything. Birth centers, you can kind of get who's on call or like sometimes you don't even know who the assistants are going to be who's there. So that's important to think about too. And then, yeah, you just, that was we're the midwife that you're talking to if you're having just any ailments really. Like I love that. What's like an average price that someone would pay for your services? In um, Southern California, it ranges from like, I'd say 4,500 to like as much as 7,000 up in Orange County, like LA areas are obviously the cost of living is more. So the price is going to be more. In my area, Riverside County, the average fee is less than 5,000. It's like 4,800 is I think what all the midwives in my particular area charge. And that covers all your prenatal care, your birth, your postpartum care. Things like labs and ultrasound are not included, but we can bill insurance for those things. And we can bill some insurances too after everything is done and try to get you reimbursed. Oh, for the cost of a midwife. Yeah. And it's kind of hit or miss with insurance because yeah, it's just like that. Some people get like fully reimbursed. Some people get one or $2,000 back. It just yeah. depends. But when you look at the price of a hospital birth, and all the things that they charge for. And yeah, I think we paid over 12. It was either 12 or $21,000 for Silas because we had really bad insurance. That was like out of pocket. That was messed up. And then with Brinley, I remember paying my doula. She was the best in the area. Um, she was like done it the most years and I wanted like the best. And she came and did like nutrition consultation with me. I was terrible at nutrition, but anyway, um, and she basically did marriage counseling with for me because <laughs> yeah. it's like needed. Thing. it's important <laughs> yeah and like the spouse like you need to anyway there was a whole like situation and so it was good but I paid $900 just for my doula and at the time Derek was like that is so expensive but what she gave me yeah. and I think it's just so weird because the time your birth it's happening it's going you know and at the time when she was there all she literally had to do was worth all $900 she just was in my ear and she said, breathe for the baby. Don't forget to breathe for the baby. And it like took all the focus off of any pain. And I was like, oh yeah, like the baby needs oxygen. Mm -hmm. That's how they get their oxygen. Yeah. My husband wouldn't know to do that. Like my husband was just holding my hand and he's like, you're doing good. Yeah. In the hospital, they're like, hold your breath. Push, 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 push. And that's why the baby's heart rate drops. And then they start freaking out and doing more interventions. But yeah, and you're paying for someone that you trust to be there like 100%. And so it's a whole lifestyle that we have to live when we're on call for these people. Like we don't do shift work like midwives in the hospital do, where it's like, I know I'm going to have next week off. I'm on call this week or whatever. Like, like I'm going to be on call until August. <laughs> and so like, I cannot just go do a random vacation. We can't be spontaneous. We can't go to a concert. We can't do any of this stuff. So it's like, like, yeah, it seems expensive to some people, but it's like our whole lives have to change to be here for these women. So. Yeah. And I think that 
I mean, I had the hospital birth, I had not. So like I had different people and cause Silas's birth was nine hours. So it was just all these, I mean, I had so many different nurses and the stress and like the, I don't know you. And now you're looking at me there and just all of that, like kept everything tight and in and I couldn't relax. And then even with Brinley, one of the midwives that I didn't love the most, but she was on call. And so I was like, crap, I thought it was going to be the other lady. So, cause it was like a birthing center kind of thing. So yeah. And it's like, that is such a huge thing. Like being naked and vulnerable in front of strangers. Not only that, but I feel like people have such a fear with pooping in front of people. Like that girl, that is, we talk about this with literally every single person. We're like, you are going to poop. If you don't poop, it's like, you're an anomaly <laughs> pretty much. Like we love poop. We get excited when we find poop because the baby's head is right behind it. Like it's such a good promising sign for us. We're all about it. There's yes, poop. <laughs> I know. And it's like, women get so embarrassed and like, Oh, I pooped. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like, dude, my poor husband saw all the things. So <laughs> mm-hmm. all the things, one of the many things we talk about in prenatal care. <laughs> so just keeping that mom at ease. And, and I just, I keep getting from it too. Like you just empower these women to know that they can do it, that everything's going to be fine. Nobody has Corona in your home. You've been trapped for 25 days. And it's like the people who have given birth in hospitals with epidurals for most of their babies. They're kind of my favorite right now who to have home births because it's like, I don't think I can do it. Like I've never felt the pains of labor. Like, you know, they just, it's such a big, scary thing in their head. And so like our very first mom whose birth we ever missed, like that was our bragging rights for like five years of working with my midwife. We've never missed a birth. (laughs) We've never missed a birth. And this one mom in particular had three babies in the hospital medicated and she was kind of like, oh, they're every like 20 minutes apart. My contractions, they're not intense, blah, blah, blah. And so we were like, okay, we're lived like five minutes from her. Like, okay, just keep us posted. We'll check back in like 45 minutes and see how things have changed. And then the husband called back in 45 minutes and he's like, um, she's kind of making like noises now. She wasn't doing that before. And yeah, she sounds, seems different. <laughs> and we're like, okay, we're going to come over. Like we're coming. And so we just like grabbed our stuff and we're heading out the door and he was downstairs just like feeding the kids, making them dinner. Like, cause she, it wasn't serious at the time. And then, um, <laughs> he heard her making noise and he went up there. So we're like in the car leaving and he calls back and he's like, the baby's here. <laughs> oh my gosh. What? What the heck? But for her, like her whole ever something we addressed at each prenatal visit was the pain and not feeling like she could do it. And for her, we're like, that was the birth she needed. She needed to know, like, I can do this. Not only can I do this, I can do this by myself in my bathroom. Like I have exactly everything I need to do this. And she just like felt so empowered and triumphant after that birth. Like she was floating for hours. That's like, Amazing. I believe I just freaking did that. Like I love it. And we're like, we're so sorry. We got there like minutes after the baby was born, but she's like, my husband lives here and he almost missed it. So. <laughs> I love it. 
Oh my gosh. That it kind of makes me upset. Cause like after Brinley, like I wanted to do another one. Cause I was like, yeah, girl, like I got this. Like my body just did that by itself. And I don't have that choice anymore. But even right after she was born, I'm like, that hurt. But it wasn't like Silas's like that. I was like traumatized by the pain. Yeah. Fully medicated with Brinley's seconds later. I was like, I would have a hundred more. Yeah. Like that was hard. The hardest thing I've ever done, but I handled it like a freaking boss. <laughs> and I remember after Joni, you said that too. You're like, I want a hundred of them. Yeah. I would do that a million times over yeah. the birth high that it takes you on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just, that's like the most important thing to us is how the person feels in labor and after labor, they feel heard and respected. And like they made the decisions in their birth and they feel empowered pretty much. It's like, there's a quote I remember reading before, a woman will forever remember how they felt in their birth. That's not something that leaves you. And that really stuck with me. I read it so many years ago and it's like, yeah, they're going to remember. I remember so many details about my births and like the negative things and the positive things from all of them. And it's, it's a journey that gets you to where you are at, but yeah, kind of what we're talking to a lot of moms about lately is, and not every person is a good candidate for out of hospital birth. That's a thing. Like we're dealing with low risk moms, but no serious complications that can't be um, dealt with out of hospital. So like breech babies, like, do you do twins? We're not allowed to anymore out of hospital in California. Oh, bummer. Yeah, we can't do twins and we can't do, um, before 37 weeks or after 42 weeks. Oh, you can't. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. That would be a bummer. Yeah. So, well, information. <laughs> that's crazy. And you have a friend who delivered her twins at home. Yeah. Yes, she did. There's one doctor in the LA area who only does home births. He's an OB and he does all the ones that we are no longer allowed to do. He does multiples, breach. I don't know if he does past 42 weeks, but yeah, he's the breach and multiples guy. So, and he actually has CPMs like, like me on his team. So it's really cool. It's really rare. He's like a unicorn. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I love it. I was going to ask one more question before we go. So say that you've got a client who's 40 weeks and they're going to be like, you said you can't deliver after 42. So like when you're at the 41 week mark, what are you telling your client to do naturally to like get th- besides sex, like get things going? Uh, that's a topic that's tough. And that's different with every midwife. Cause we really want people to trust their bodies that their bodies can do this. So we really don't try to focus too much on like, what can we do to make your body go into labor? Your body knows how and when to go into labor. Actually, like your baby is the one that decides when you go into labor because when they're full ready, fully cooked to say they release a hormone that triggers your uterus to start labor. And so we really just try to focus on like the emotional status of the person. If they're having anything like that's holding them up and if they're feeling safe and things like that, we talk about sex a lot, of course, but we do have some tricks that we do if we're just knocking on the 42 week door and have no other resort like herbs or Pitocin, like a hospital does. We're still inducing labor. So yeah, it's not my favorite thing. In six years of working with the midwife I've been with, we've induced one person 
Oh, really? What'd you like, what'd you guys have to do? Um, we do like a combination of cervical stretching, playing with the cervix, herbs, things like that. I did primrose oil vaginally. And I think I also ate it. And then I did red raspberry leaf tea because I was refusing to go get checked. Oh, okay. So they did ultrasound, ultrasound. I think they ultrasounded my placenta just to see, cause I was so close to 42 weeks. But yeah. she's like, as long as your placenta looks healthy, I'll let you keep going. My doula was like, you don't need to get checked. But, and then I went to the chiropractor. So primrose oil, red raspberry leaf tea, and then chiropractic. And I swear that the chiropractor put, I was like, thank God she put me into labor. Yeah. We- I mean, it wasn't right away. It was like that night, but just continual chiropractic care. I feel like my hips were aligned to do what they needed to do. Yeah. Well, that's a big thing we talk about throughout the whole pregnancy. And yeah, we do have to um, send out for ultrasounds after 41 weeks to check on all the things. It's called a biophysical profile. So it just checks on the baby and the fluid and the placenta and all those things to make sure we're still in a safe spot to continue waiting. I love that. That like, honestly puts me at so much ease. I don't know, like why I'd never used a midwife. Like it makes me sad now. Okay. Before we get going, tell us how, if people live in your area, how can they get a hold of you? If they want to talk to you, if they want to interview you, what are some ways that people can get a hold of you? Yeah. So I'm just on the tail end of midwifery school. I'm going to become licensed this summer. So I don't have like my own website or anything up and running yet, but people can find me probably on Instagram at Amanda underscore Latham, L-A-T-H-A-M. And they can probably just reach out to me on there. There's some some of my crazy family stuff too. Perfect. And then when you are certified and everything and you guys, maybe even when you reach out to her, but if you guys are wanting more talk on more natural ways to do things and possibly even a vaccination podcast, I would be more than happy to talk circumcision, talk vaccination and other fun things. Yeah. All all the controversial things. Bring it. Yeah, might as well, right? Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for being here. I always love chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. We'll see you guys later. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know. I love hearing from you guys. Tag me on Instagram and make sure you subscribe and leave me a review and tell us what you love most about this podcast. Don't forget to send this episode to someone in your life who you know needs to hear this message. I love adding value to all of you. So thank you so much for listening and sharing. It means the world to me.